0: Amen. So, uh, by this time, we ought to be on the fourth commandment in our series to the Ten Commandments, but here we are, still on the first. And as much as that is about me being long-winded, it's probably more so about the commandments being measurelessly deep and profound. But one thing I suspect we do not associate with the commandments, and that is mission. They seem to be much more about sanctification than evangelization. And yet, these first three commandments, particularly this first one, have much to say about the church's mission in the wider world. Therefore, what I want to do this morning is tell a simple story, a three part story. First, a revolution, then, a victory. And then lastly, a defeat. And after that story, I want to circle back around to the commandment because I think then we will be in a better position to understand the first commandment, missionally understood, what it means for us to have no other God or other gods, which gods we must strive against today. So, With that, let's proceed. First, a revolution. In Christ, the first commandment, have no other gods before me, receives a new meaning. It's transposed like a piece of music from one key to another, from a covenantal key to a missional key. Given to Israel, the commandment was primarily about fidelity, about commitment, but now refracted through Christ. And though it still retains its former meaning, it is given a universal scope. It essentially becomes the church's mission, have no other gods. It is a declaration of war upon all other gods. So in his words to the Athenians, proclaiming the gospel to them too, The Apostle explains. This is Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31. Paul speaking says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men, by raising him from the dead. The Apostles' speech hinges upon the words God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent. Now things are different. Now all people are accountable. Now they are summoned to repent. There has been a titanic shift, a shift of titanic proportions. The past, the, time, the times of ignorance, as the apostle calls them, have given way to something new. Now, another passage in which the apostle again tries to keep pagans from sacrificing to him fills out the picture. This is Acts chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. He says, men, why are you doing these things? Again, they're trying to sacrifice to him. He says, we are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then he says this, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. So, the gospel he preaches, the apostle says, is that the nation should turn from these vain things to the true God. And then he provides insight into his rationale. In generations gone by, he elaborates, God permitted the nations to go their own way. So, in other words, God, in his wisdom, permitted the nations to serve other gods in their ignorance. The divine purpose in generations gone by ran exclusively through the nation of Israel. That is, until the fullness of time when it would expand, that is, the divine purpose, to a universal scale. Yet, prior to that appointed time, the first commandment was primarily in-house. It was about the nation's fidelity. It was not about mission, because the nations had been turned over to other gods to worship idols for the time being. So the commandment then was about tutelage. It was about true worship. It was about what Israel was doing within itself as a nation. And that, of course, was the subject Of our message last week. We talked about our own stubborn and tenacious commitment to have no other gods in our hearts and our lives. But now, in the advent of Christ, things have changed forever. Through his ascension to the right hand of God, Christ has become the Lord of history the one through whom God will judge the world in righteousness. And it's not simply that Christ has ascended, but where he is ascended to, the right hand of God, the position of ultimate authority in heaven and on earth. He rose above the angels, says John Chrysostom. He passed by the cherubim. He went higher than the seraphim. He bypassed the thrones. He did not stop until he arrived at the very throne of God. The ascension is an exaltation, higher and higher and higher, till Christ is seated in authority far above all principalities and powers, all angels and demons, all thrones and dominions and so-called gods. He is Lord, the only Lord. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 20 through 22, puts it this way. He, that's God, raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. So God has raised Christ, a man, far above all spiritual powers and authorities in the heavenly places. Indeed, far above all things. And therefore, here's the thing, now and therefore, all things are now subject to him. In the Greek, it's the word uh, hypo, hypostasso, and it means to place under or to bring under control. And the picture that we get then in the ascension of Christ is one of the cosmic, mutinous, and incompetent powers that formerly possess dominion, being firmly placed under the authority of Christ. Their jurisdiction, in other words, has been taken from them The rule formerly allotted to them, in which they exercised authority over the nations, is now Christ's, who sits at the right hand of God. Thus, back to our first passage in Acts 17, having set Christ far above all things, the apostle boldly declares, God is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent. Repent. There has been a revolution in the heavens. Christ has become, in his death and resurrection and ascension, the emperor and sovereign over the entirety of the created order. All other spiritual powers are banished. And his universal lordship demands universal obedience. Hence, the church's mission The Great Commission, Acts chapter 28, verses 18 and 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Three times the word all is repeated. Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, the church's mission is to evangelize and baptize all the nations, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us. Thus, in Christ's glorious work, the first commandment is invested with an entirely new meaning. Whereas in times past, in regard to Israel, it was in-house, fundamentally about their fidelity, now in Christ, in regard to the church, it has become missional. The commandment to have no other gods is not an invitation to forsake one religion for another or a mere prohibition against foreign cults. But rather, an announcement that the shape of the world has changed. From the depths of hell to the heaven of heavens, all nations are called to submit to Jesus as Lord. For the church, therefore, for you and I, the first commandment is a call to arms. It is a declaration of war upon all other gods. All the world has to be evangelized and baptized. All idols torn down, all worship given to the one who in these last days has sent his son into the world for our salvation. The first commandment is our mission. And so that brings us to the second part of our story. We've seen the revolution of Christ's ascension and now a victory. A victory. It's nearly impossible, at least for us, living on the far side of all these events, to understand the revolutionary power and audacity that the church's evangelical message have no other gods had in the ancient world. We hear that today, and it's so familiar, so normal, That we can't quite understand its power. Whereas then it was utterly, utterly audacious. There was a reason that the apostles, wherever they went and preached the gospel, were persecuted and hunted down. Their message was nothing less than an assault upon the ancient order of the world. It was, again, religion today is something that's private, it's what you do in your own home, and it doesn't. Have anything to do with politics, at least that's what they want, the definition that's being peddled of religion. It doesn't have to do with any of that stuff, it's just what happens in house. That's not the way it was back then. Everything depended upon the religious order. And so, therefore, when the church says no other gods, you're basically tearing down the whole world, everything that people thought they knew. And for the ancient church, this wasn't merely a metaphor. Take, for instance, our baptismal confession. The minister asks, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? And the one seeking baptism replies, I renounce them. Now I pulled that from the ancient churches' um, handbooks. For them, a life was spiritual warfare. Baptism was not something one took upon themselves lightly, but a very real renunciation of the pagan gods. I'm turning my back on all of that, everything I ever knew, and I'm committing to serve no other god. And even more astonishing than the church's revolutionary proclamation was that it was victorious. Our ancient brothers and sisters, of whom the world was not worthy, utterly conquered the ancient world, for Christ. Where are the old gods now? Look around. Where are the cults of Zeus and Apollo and Isis? Their mighty deeds are nothing more than intriguing stories now, a bit of fantasy before bed. And their temples have been reduced to mere tourist spots, admired more for their architecture than their sanctity. Christ has rendered the old gods absurd. And the victory is rendered no more beautifully than in these words. This is David Bentley Hart. He says, It was a long and sometimes terrible conflict, occasionally exacting a fearful price in martyr's blood. But it was, by any just estimate, a victory. The temples of Zeus and Isis alike were deserted, both the Panaean and the Dithmarab, ceased to be sung. Altars were bereft of their sacrifices, the Sibyls fell silent, and ultimately, all the glory, nobility, and cruelty of the ancient world lay supine at the feet of Christ, the conqueror. So the world, at least in large measure, was baptized and evangelized. The mission No other gods had, in a very real sense, been realized. And in surveying the church's ancient victory, what they accomplished for Christ, or rather what Christ accomplished in them, to be quite honest, waves of jealousy and shame come over me. Jealousy, because I wish to leave a legacy as theirs, that our works, in our day, would be treasured by our descendants, an example for them that's forever been etched into Christian history. And shame because our devotion and zeal and faith, at least mine, are so comparatively weak. I feel unworthy to claim the name Christian, knowing just what it meant to them. Giants walked the earth then. Which leads us now to our final act. It's been a revolution. There has been a victory. And yet it's followed by a defeat. So we fast forward 1,500 years in history to our day. The state that things are in now. The ground that has been gained, the territory that was staked out for Christ, has been all but lost. However, as the faith that once dominated these shores recedes from the picture, what returns is not the former gods, but something new, a new God. Christ's, as we have said, has made their return laughable and absurd. Now, a few fruitcakes might set up shrines to Aphrodite and Odin, but they can never be taken seriously. Let alone gain a true following. Instead, in the aftermath of Christianity, the only worship that can thrive, the only sort of real religion that can take root in our environment, is the worship of the self. The former gods, Zeus, Apollo, it's absurd. That's not an option. But neither is the man on the cross. We can't follow him either. And therefore, all that is left, literally all that's left, once all that is gone, once Christianity, which conquered the world, disappears, the only thing that's left is ourselves, our passions, our intuitions, our unfettered wills. So our God, the one who rules today, in other words, is to do what we want, to be what we want, to consume what we want. And our devotion to this God has borne its fruit. The result is a society that is the zenith of mediocrity and degradation. Now, I suspect some of the older generation might be touched by this, but it has positively overcome the younger generation. And I don't say that in any way condemning or whatever, just a statement of fact. We cannot aspire any longer. We cannot innovate. We cannot create anything or progress from the spot where we happen to be standing on. Put simply, we are content and wish for nothing more than to remain in our contentedness. It's great. It's good. I don't want anything more than this. I can't be moved. Don't talk to me. Don't, I don't want to hear it. I'm good. I have it all. Our last state is what the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche called the last man. He said this is the end of history when people end up like this. Or, what more popularly, the Beatles called the nowhere man. I didn't put the lyrics. I'll have to read them for you. I'm sure some of you have heard this song. He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to, isn't he a bit like you and me? He's as blind as he can be, just sees what he wants to see. Nowhere man, can you see me at all? Nowhere man, don't worry, take your time, don't hurry. Leave it all till somebody else lends you a hand that's quite a summary of our times the God that we serve again our absolute freedom to do whatever we want to be whatever we want to create our own reality has reduced us to a vain and lethargic people we can neither be nor accomplish anything great because we love our comforts and our safety and our repose too much Instead, what we aspire to are ever greater amounts of entertainment, leisure, and pleasure. Nowhere people in our nowhere lands making all our nowhere plans for nobody. But one might object and say, religion is everywhere, not Christianity. Look around. Everyone's spiritual in some way, especially here in the States. Now, that's true. Religion survives, and in a very real way we are religious people, but here's the thing, and here we're starting to get to the point I'm trying to make. It's religion, but it's religion that's hardly worth the name. This is not religion like it was in the past. This is not religion like it was for the ancients or even the people in medieval times. This is—it's something new. Carries the name, but it's something new. Now, uh, Tara Isabella Burton, um, in her book Strange, Rites which kind of chronicles this, um, she chronicles a shift from what she calls institutional religion to intuitional religion. So we've moved from institutional religion to intuitional religion. So the nuns, right, the, the people who are supposedly abandoning religion, she argues, and she makes a very, a very convincing case, that they're not outright rejecting religion, but uh, her, her word is that they're remixing religion. They're not rejecting it; they're remixing it. Let me read you a quote. She says, "The remixed reject authority, institution, creed, and moral universalism." So that's that's what we could call institutional religion. We don't want that anymore. We don't want we don't want a hierarchy. We don't want some sort of institutional apparatus. We don't want a creed to aspire to 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 believe. And we don't want moral universals, right? It just says, rather, they value intuition, personal feeling, and experiences. They write their own scripts about how the universe and human beings operate. The remix don't want to receive doctrine to assent automatically to a creed. They want to choose, and more often than not, purchase the spiritual path that feels more authentic, more meaningful to them. So, intuitional religion, which is the only religion today, is to adhere to a creed, a moral code, a transcendence of one's own making. So, it's not really devotion to the gods or some higher principle, but ultimately to oneself. Though the gods and higher principles are part of it, we just take what we want and use it to our own means. Another title that she puts toward institutional religion is, um, she calls it bespoke, which is to say custom-made or made-to-order, right? bespoke religions. Just like the things we buy, the entertainment we consume, the causes we take up, so in our modern day, the gods that we worship, the religions that we adhere to, the moral codes that we abide by are simply a matter of taste. Another avenue of of self-expression upon the smorgasbord of life. I have a little bit of each one, and I'll I'll remix my own. So you get the point. You get how there may be a bunch of religion, but it's really not religion. It's something else. So here, therefore, is the one terrible truth that we've been traveling toward. Modern religion... Not excluding much of what we call Christianity is simply a guise cast over the truth, that we serve ourselves. Today's gods, if we can rightly call them gods, command neither reverence nor dread nor love nor belief. They are merely masks worn by the one true unrivaled God of this age, the self who alone bids his subjects come and go. And so now at last, a revolution, a victory, a defeat. Our mission, what the first commandment means for us today, has emerged from darkness into light. It is this God, the sovereign individual, the absolute will, that the commandment, calls us to strive against. And I think before us is truly a task more daunting and more demanding than the one originally placed upon the ancient church. Is it easier, or it is easier, is it not, to convince a man that he is held captive by the gods, worshiping dumb idols, than it is to convince him that he's a prisoner to his own will and passions? especially when such service is so agreeable and pleasant. It's quite a hard thing to do. And we'll get to our mission outside, but in order to defeat this God, we must recognize his presence in our own lives, within the church. Surely, intuitional religion, intuitional everything, rules the day outside the church. But has it not also made great headway inside the church? For us, too, devotion to Christ has become a means to obtain our real end, to serve ourselves. Now, this finds expression in many ways, but chief among them is sloth, laziness, Because we can no longer be commanded, nor have any obligation placed upon us, except those of our own making and our own choosing, our obedience has become a matter of convenience. Thy will be done, but only if it requires little effort and difficulty. The God we really serve is ourselves, and thus only when the living God's interests align with ours. Only when it doesn't cost too much do we obey him. But the moment that changes, when his commandments call for self-abnegation, the deconstruction of our insulated worlds, we fold. We come to Christ for forgiveness and redemption and comfort, but turn our backs or else deafen our ears when he commands sacrifice and discipline and renunciation. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, he says to us, and do not do what I say? Christ, who sits at the right hand of God, Lord of heaven and earth, has been subsumed into and subordinated under the God of this age, having become a means to an end. And here's the trouble. Because our faith is ultimately in service to ourselves, It cannot call us from ourselves, nor can it wake us up from our sleep. All that a faith that is serving oneself can do is reinforce the status quo, our prior concerns and expectations. It can't wake you up from sleep because it put you into sleep in the first place. For all intents and purposes, it is functionally dead. And eventually what happens is that the entire faith, the church, its members, its practices and worship, becomes about us. All of it is bent to serve the new bottom line. It can't make demands. It can't require anything from us. It can't call us out of ourselves because it has to serve us. And you would think, right, that at the end of the day that the God we serve must be much, much like the God gods that the nations serve. He must be devoid of majesty and awe to command our reverence. There must be nothing there. He must be empty of grandeur and power to provoke our dread. He must be utterly lacking beauty and holiness to incite our love. He must be untrustworthy and faithless, leaving us unbelieving. This is sloth, indifferent, unheeding, unmoved by anything but our own desires and will. So what then? Given that we are resolved enough, and I believe we are, to carry out the militant command against all other gods, what shall we do? How do we respond? I think first and foremost, and I don't want to be dramatic here, we must recognize the state that we're in that we're not even playing the same game that our brothers and sisters were. Rebuke me if I'm wrong, but most do not care anymore. Most cannot be moved to action. We've sunk into a deep, depressing state of lethargy. We need to take on our lips Asaph's mournful cry. All throughout the Psalms, there are passages of, great people of faith who rise up out of the lethargy, out of the terrible state, and they say, Lord, this needs to change. And that's what we need to do. Psalm 80, verses 18 and 19. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. That's what's first needed, is to just say, Lord, you need to rescue us, save us from ourselves. But other than that, to overcome the God of this age, it is my firm conviction that we must recover a rigorous discipline about the practice of our faith. Here's the thing. Just about everything in our modern culture is designed to serve us, To make our lives easier, more comfortable, and trouble-free. And we must resist the temptation to make our Christianity the same way. Everything everything is tailored to make it easy for us. We cannot do that with the faith. And while I'm not ungrateful for such modern advances, I certainly wouldn't want to be living in any of the pastimes. I am warning of their dangers. They dole our spiritual aptitude and hunger, either rocking us to sleep in their luxuries or else crowding out any other voice by the din of their entertainment. Put simply, they make us lazy and therefore soft. Though all things are lawful, the apostle says, not all things are edifying. Is it necessarily wrong or perhaps sinful to indulge in the comforts and charms of our society? No. But is binging away on entertainment and recreation and leisure profitable? The only answer can be a defiant no. Such things instill the very dispositions within us, sloth, turpor, passivity, that we must strive against. Therefore, in order to pry ourselves from the spiritual lethargy in which we've sunk into, we must apply ourselves to a more committed, more austere piety. Our culture, church, is simply too coercive, too appealing to our based instincts, to the flesh, for it not to be held at a distance. Once it pulls us into its orbit, it will not relinquish us very easily. Now, such an ascetic approach may at first appear too stern and dour, legalistic even. But I am convinced it is the only way. Now, our words asceticism or ascetic come from the Greek word askein, which means to exercise or to train. And naturally, it refers to competition. An athlete, if they care the slightest... If they want to earn some glory for themselves, they must train and discipline themselves to compete at the highest level. They deny themselves things that we mere mortals regularly enjoy, food and drink, free time and et cetera, et cetera. They deny themselves all those things, good things, but they've got a higher goal. There's something they want to attain and so forth. These other things, they don't matter. Maybe they do matter, but they're willing to sacrifice them so they can attain a higher goal. And I'm painfully aware that a campaign for asceticism, a more rigorous discipline, is unpopular. I feel like the one selling vegan burgers outside Blake's. <laughs> and I'm not one for vegan burgers, nor vegan anything. So let me try a different analogy. Asceticism is to you what a trellis is to a vine. It's not the lively part that grows and bears fruit and is beautiful to the eyes. It is rather the structure that supports the lively part. It's hidden. It's unattractive, but it's indispensable. It Provide structure. It provides something to cling to. Or you might say asceticism is to you what a mold is to molten metal. Apart from a mold to be cast into, to give it its shape and form and usefulness, the molten metal serves very little purpose. Asceticism is the trellis upon which all our new tendrils can cling to and support themselves. It is the mold which gives form to our liquid potential. We need something to undergird us, a, a framework and a structure to promote us to higher growth. And that's what the sort of discipline I'm advocating for is. So it is quite simply the athlete's asceticism that is the key to having no other gods in our modern age. Now, I don't believe that the problem is that we're not evangelizing enough or that we're not building genuine community Now, those are certainly problems and areas which our church could certainly do better in. Rather, my opinion is that the problem is much deeper. I think if we treat those, if we say, let's go, let's do this, we're only treating the surface problem, a manifestation of a deeper issue. We have to treat it at that core level, which is, once again, an inability on our part to be commanded by anything outside of ourselves. All of our efforts to accomplish something will be reduced to rubble if this one main thing is not addressed. We've forgotten that Christ commands us and that his commands are not optional. They are not there to be taken or left depending on the mood, our mood of the, uh, on that day. We are antinomians, literally anti law. Therefore, what is needed, and, and here what I'm advocating for, is not a deeper commitment to the law, but a deeper commitment to Christ that expresses itself in obedience to the law. So, let's say I've convinced you and that what's needed for our times is a more rigorous discipline. What now? Where, where, where do we start? What can, what can I do? So, allow me to suggest just a few practices. Begin by cultivating a more regimented prayer life. I know we want prayer to be exciting and romantic and deeply relational, but if you've ever tried to pray consistently, you know that it's not. At least, not all the time. So, begin by cultivating a regimented prayer life. And do this. Pray three times a day. Pray in the morning, pray at noon, and pray in the evening. Do that and don't deviate from the course. Make it a habit. Discipline yourself to be near to the Lord. And to a regimen of prayer, add monthly fasting. It seems hunger, for many reasons, is our ultimate and most primary desire. The other desires spring from hunger and are subordinate to it. And really, if one can rein in their appetite disciplining it through fasting naturally the other desires are going to follow naturally you're going to be better at saying no to yourself in other areas and lastly get in the habit of regular alms giving that is sacrificing from your own material resources to help those in need there is nothing easier to use selfishly maybe apart from your time than your own money and now I recommend these three things, not on my own authority, but Christ's. He lists these three things as practices of righteousness in his Sermon on the Mount. It's, it was widely recognized, prayer, fasting, almsgiving. He just says, don't do them to be seen. So in some measure, these form the basis of a godly life. And if we can discipline ourselves in them, I think we'll be well on our way to becoming the kind of people we need to be to resist the pressures of our time. And to those personal ones, and I'll begin to wrap up here, let me add a few corporate ones. We cannot commit to, be ever more faithful, to, to ever more faithful devotion to Christ and not to his people. Those two things go hand in hand. There's no, Lord, I'm going to give you my life without giving your life to his church. So start here. Don't miss church. There's no issue with extraordinary circumstances and special plans. I make sure to take time off to rest and all that good stuff. But there is an issue with laziness and complacency and indifference. What really matters to you? Do this. Reach out to someone. Get coffee. Share a meal. Spend time encouraging and praying for one another. Commit yourself to these things and to Christ's people that he's bled for. So here's the challenge. Inconvenience yourself. Shake up your neat and tidy lives. Disrupt complacency. It will take a formidable faith and devotion to resist the evils of our age. And we can either float along in the lazy river Believing in nothing, devoted to nothing, moved by nothing. Or we can swim upstream proclaiming in word and deed, no other gods. Let's pray.